It's October 7th, 1922 in Orem, Utah. BYU football's first official game. The Cougars are playing the Utah State Aggies. The quarterback for BYU is Boney Fuller. Boney is running around on a dirt field. Nobody is wearing face masks or pads. Boney and his teammates were exceptionally overmatched. The Aggies were already established. Their first year of football was in 1892. They had a well-oiled machine. BYU was a crew of scrappy kids who didn't know what they were doing. The Aggies obliterated the Cougars 41-3. In our last episode, I talked about my personal experience with BYU football. How as a kid, I ate, slept, and drank BYU football games. But I wanted to know about the Cougars from the very inception of the team. Like, who were the football players from 100 years ago? Where did they play? What were their lives like? In this episode, we're diving into the history of the team and looking at the first 50 years. The program launched a century ago in 1922. But that's only its official start, because actually Brigham Young players were playing football decades before. Before BYU was a university, it was Brigham Young Academy. BYA was established in 1875 by its namesake, Brigham Young, the second prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He wanted to provide higher education opportunities for church members. Football wound its way into that vision, but it was touch and go. Historian Hunter M. Hampton is the author of BYU Football and the Making of Modern Mormonism. I sat down with Dr. Hampton to talk about these early Brigham Young football years. The early days of football were touch and go at a lot of universities. BYU wasn't alone in that, but it's setting out west and its uh, attachment to the LDS church really played an impact on that. Football at this time was mostly played at elite coastal institutions like Yale and Harvard. These schools were a ground for young men to not only nurture their minds, but also their athletic prowess. Other institutions were hesitant to incorporate the game into campus life. The villain for the early days of uh, BYU football was actually Brigham Young Academy's first president, Carl Meiser was his name. And he, like a lot of college administrators uh, at the time, did not think that football had a place on campus. And so as football starts and is kind of spreading uh, across college campuses, he does a really great job of keeping it off uh, of BYU's campus. His predecessor, Benjamin Clough Jr., allows the first games. In 1893, Brigham Young Academy played its first game, and it didn't go very well. There was a knockout fight, kicks and punches, blood and bruises. The game looked barbaric. The violence of the game then was particular. There's a great account of an early BYU football player. He describes how in the early days and early rules, the down didn't end until the ball stopped moving forward. And so he he was one of the ball carriers. And so he was handed the ball and he was running around the end and he got tackled. But as long as he was moving, and so he was crawling snake-like on the ground is the word that he used to try to keep moving forward and to stop him, players would come and put their knees or their elbows into the player's neck. 
Subsequent games went the same way. So BYA administrators said, enough, no more football. The church and the school decided football was just too dangerous. In October of 1900, it's like, we are officially banning football on campus. I call that kind of stretch from 1900 to about 1920, the dark years. And the students are kind of left to wrestle with what now. Students clamored for more, so they found a new way to play. A group of students organized to play against local YMCA groups. They used high school fields nearby. They played local clubs. They played other university teams that those college squads needed a tune-up. One of the people who kept the spirit of football alive was a student named Eugene Roberts. He was part of the last BYA team that got shut down. Roberts wore spectacles, had big pointy ears. He didn't look like your typical jock, but he loved the game. Eugene Roberts is going to keep showing up in our story. Brigham Young Academy became Brigham Young University in 1909, but the newly named institution was still hesitant to incorporate football into campus life, especially after there was an accidental death in one of the football games involving a BYA athlete. That changed during World War I. Across the country, football became an outlet for war-torn men returning home. The game was cathartic. World War I exposed the need kind of for this incredibly violent game, something that had been shunned for the literal death of athletes. All of a sudden became something, maybe we actually do need this on campus. Maybe we do need this more controlled violence to install and to kind of make our students the type of American men that we want. The LDS Church had banned polygamy in 1890, or almost 20 years earlier, and was attempting to redesign what the community should look like. In the post-war period, they wanted churchmen to be tough, strong, athletic. Football was an opportunity to showcase those qualities. Scholars of Mormonism look at this period of time is really influential to see how we go from polygamy being the primary external marker to being the word of wisdom and younger men going on their mission. And football becomes a a tool to do that. In 1919, BYU announced plans to fill the varsity football team in the Rocky Mountain Athletic Conference. Their first season was set for 1922. The person they hire to bring it back is Eugene Roberts, who was the player in the early 1900 to 1905 that's like trying to keep it alive. He's now brought back as kind of the athletic director. You know, Eugene Roberts, I had heard of this guy. He was kind of a footnote in BYU history. But the more I've learned about him, I've realized how instrumental he was in building the program's foundation. I mean, he really is the, this great bridge between the game going away and bringing it back. In the 1919 press release announcing BYU's return to football, Roberts said, quote, The Brigham Young University is half hysterical over football's reappearance among its athletic activities, end quote. BYU was in the same league as state-funded public universities like the University of Utah, Utah State, and the University of Colorado. It was a big deal for a faith-based school to be among public universities. And BYU student body? After two decades of waiting, they were ready for football's return. 
Roberts needed to position BYU for a successful launch, so he took a Midwest tour of the Big Ten Conference to learn what BYU needed to do to operate at a high level. And he realized just how much work was cut out for the Cougars. He talks about just like the rough and the tough and the dirty kind of masculinity that he found on these Big Ten campuses. It really challenges the manhood of the of the students at BYU at this time. It's like, I don't know if we're going to be able to have the number of students to come out and fill a roster like these Big Ten schools. Well, if toughness was an issue before the students began playing, they would definitely get toughened up by the equipment players wore in the 1920s. The padding had increased, but it had increased from nothing to something. In the early 20s, a lot of the padding were just kind of big, heavy cotton or wool shirts, long sleeve, with extra kind of cotton shoved into the shoulders. That's what served as a shoulder pad. And one of the big shifts that had happened that had made football more palatable by 1920 was the encouragement and use of helmets. They were they were leather for the most part. They were able to they had some sort of head protection. It wasn't much. Pretty bare bones as far as protection goes and, and why injuries were pretty gruesome and pretty regular. The football fields in those days weren't much better either. The field itself was covered in rocks and dirt, patchy grass. If you look at early pictures, there's not a lot of stands. Usually fans just kind of stood three or four rows deep. It was pretty sparse. And in that first football season in 1922, the wins were also sparse. Today, BYU is known for its all-star quarterbacks. But in 1922, BYU had a quarterback named Livonia Fuller. He went by Boney. You may know Boney from his social media channels. He has kind of a cult following. The Boney memes are truly on point because Boney Fuller cannot throw the ball. It's possible he had other positive qualities. BYU's first media guide called him a clear thinker. It said he knew how to direct plays. Then again, BYU's yearbook that year said, quote, Boney is the son of a stake president in the church, but he inherits none of the attributes of such an office, end quote. Boney may not have been any good at the game, but he was part of the first season in BYU's history. And for that, we thank him. That first season was mostly a flop. BYU lost five of their six games. But that lone victory, a 7-0 defeat against Wyoming, that win was a cause for celebration. Students were ecstatic. The players were revered like war heroes. This excitement was exactly why the school had decided to bring football back. Eugene Roberts took that win and wanted to nurture it. So he put out a bold call for help to one of the nation's best coaches, Notre Dame's Newt Rockney. It shows this kind of the role football plays in plugging BYU into the broader spectrum of America and American culture. Newt Rockney is one of the more famous Americans in the 1920s. This was the 1920s, so communication was very slow. In the athletic department in Provo, they send their letter to Coach Rockney, but they took the ND of Notre Dame, and they actually sent it to North Dakota University. 
they mailed the letter to the wrong university. I don't know how it ended up at Notre Dame. I guess the post office knew which Coach Rockney it was addressed to. Rockney was drawn to the idea of helping another faith-based school. He eventually made his way to Provo. His visit planted a seed in BYU to aspire to greatness and be the church's version of Notre Dame. Coach John Hart asked him for his game plan because Rockney had game planned against a team that had beat the University of Utah the year before. And so he was hoping that if he could recreate, if Hart could recreate this BYU strategy, he could beat the University of Utah. But unfortunately, even, even Newt Rockney's notes weren't enough for the Cougars to overtake the Utes. Through the 1920s, BYU got better. But even with Rockney's expertise in their pockets, they didn't win a single game against the Utes the whole decade. The lone highlight against Utah was a 0-0 tie in 1928. There was nothing more BYU wanted than to take down the Utes. Seasons are often now and then defined by that game. And you would see that on, on BYU's campus too. Even when they, they did kind of hit their stride and start winning games and start having winning seasons and this real momentum on campus and then they would lose the Utah game. And then the rest of the season didn't matter. And so you may be six and one, seven, one, eight and one, nine and one and having some of the most successful seasons in BYU football history. But if you lost that one, it didn't matter. So the team had its ups and downs across the decade, mostly downs. But in the broader context of BYU community life, the spirit of football was gaining momentum. Football and LDS faith were intertwining. One of the coaches that really helped secure that that bond to the church and really begin to use uh, football at BYU as a tool was Giot Romney. Yes, you probably recognize the name. Giot Romney was Senator Mitt Romney's uncle. He was... Uh, a coach in the 1930s that really used the the players and the tools that the church had and, and, and brought them together. He would talk about the importance of being a good athlete, what that brings to BYU's team, but they would also enforce the religious mission of the church. He would talk about how these student-athletes living by the word of wisdom uh, made them stronger, better athletes and better men of faith through that. And when football is kind of brought back onto campus, they are talking about the the role of Jesus and start using football metaphors in there. And at one point, Jesus becomes our quarterback that we all should follow onto the football field of life. And the, the great kind of end thing is if we follow his call and direction, we are bound to win. Coach Romney was a good coach, but he wasn't good enough to beat the Utes. BYU played the Utes 20 times before their first victory. It was 1942. World War II had pulled players and coaches to the war effort. One of those players was BYU quarterback Vaughn Kimball. During the 1942 season, Kimball was in the Navy. He wasn't able to be with his team for that Utah game. So he sent a motivational telegram to his teammates. It read... Saturday, there is one thing more important than the war, and that is to beat Utah. This accomplishment would aid in the morale of 25,000 alumni and aid in the war effort. So give them hell, Brigham. Give them hell. 
Even amidst war, it was top of mind to beat Utah, and the order was received. BYU defeated the rival Utes. BYU 12, Utah 7. It was a significant breakthrough for BYU. It proved the Cougars were capable of greatness. Eventually, great games turned into great seasons, which turned into championships. The championship aspirations started to show in the 1960s. First with the Phantom Eldon Fortai. Fortai was called the Phantom because he was so fast you could barely see him. The Phantom was BYU's first All-American player. He didn't quite lead BYU to championships, but he was another example of how the program was evolving and that it could attract some of the nation's best players. He ran for a single-game record 272 yards, a record that lasted until 2016. Another notable 1960s player was Mark Lyons. Lyons' place at BYU was unexpected. He wasn't LDS. He wasn't from Utah. I could spell it. Uh, so it was a <laughs> I didn't know much at all. I did know that it was a Mormon school. He was a solid starting quarterback during his BYU career. But more significantly, he went on to be a voice for Cougar football as an analyst on KSL News Radio. Former BYU quarterback Mark Lyons, the longtime analyst on BYU football radio broadcast, was on the mic for the final time at the Potato Bowl. 38 years in the booth, BYU broadcast won't be the same without the Arvada Flash. Lyons helped paint the picture of many memorable BYU games for nearly four decades from 1980 to 2018. And he was part of BYU's first championship team, the WAC champs in 1965. At the time, the Cougars were coached by Tommy Hudspeth. How do I say he was not very well liked, but uh, demanded respect? He was in charge. There was no doubt about that. Hudspeth brought the belly option offense to BYU. It was an offense designed to attack its opponents in a variety of ways. Which uh, I think was effective at the time. I think Tommy brought in a good offensive scheme. The defense was led by uh, Coach Jim uh, Dick Felt, and he did a good job in, in putting in a good defense, and uh, that combination made him get better. In 65, Lyons was a freshman, so that meant star quarterback Virgil Carter was running that belly option offense. Virgil was very smart, very athletic. He was skilled and, and seemed as though everything he did was right. BYU was against WAC powerhouse Arizona State. This was the Sun Devils' era of dominance. WAC championships during this decade went through ASU. And here comes little old BYU running the belly option. Miraculously, BYU won. And they didn't just eke out a W. They dominated 24-6. Despite this huge win, BYU's fan base remained meager. A deer hunt was a real problem. We didn't have many people show up uh, on deer hunt weekend. They weren't totally committed to uh, BYU football at that time. It was stiff competition for student attention. BYU didn't win another WAC championship until, oh, you know, just a coach named Lavelle Edwards was roaming the sidelines for the boys in blue. The rest of Hudspeth's tenure wasn't defined by the game itself, but by controversy. Football has never been just about wins and losses. Football and protest have gone together since the dawn of the game. In 1969, with the backdrop of a Latter-day Saint Church policy not allowing black male members to hold the priesthood, 
and a national reckoning surrounding the civil rights movement, racial justice was playing out on the field. In 1969, an all-white BYU team was scheduled to play the University of Wyoming. Wyoming had a number of black athletes on their team. During this time, controversy about the ban on black men holding the priesthood had entered the national conversation. So when Wyoming students caught wind of the matchup, they protested. 14 black Wyoming players went to their coach and said they planned to wear black armbands during the game in support of the student protest. They were promptly kicked off the team. The Black 14, as they came to be called, made national headlines. John Griffin, a member of the Black 14, lost his love for football because of that incident in 1969. That entire football season, I couldn't wait until it was over to get on with my life. There were more protests at BYU games that season. Things got heated. Fans interrupted game after game. And at the end of the season, Hudspeth set goals to recruit black athletes to BYU. It's unclear exactly what his motivation was. Maybe he was fed up with the protest. Maybe he was worried about BYU's reputation in the national landscape. Maybe he genuinely thought it was best for the team. In 1970, Hudspeth recruited the Cougars' first black athlete, number 31, Ron Knight. He became a starting safety during his tenure with the Cougars. How exactly did Hudspeth recruit him? We don't actually know. There's shamefully little known about Ron Knight. The Black 14 protest was instrumental in breaking the color barrier in the BYU football program and advancing race relations in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Today, the Black 14 philanthropy and the church work together to bring food to those in need. BYU and the LDS Church, we're working in concert with one another. We're making things happen in such a way that people never would have guessed this five, ten years ago. We're in a partnership, and we're even in more of a friendship. From 1922 to 1971, BYU, by all accounts, was a mediocre football program. They won 42% of their games. They won one conference championship and had limited success against the rival Utes. In these early decades, the Cougars were affectionately known as the Cats. And as their nickname suggests, BYU in this era had to scratch and claw for everything they got. They worked hard. They showed moments of potential. And they established the core qualities of the team we know today. Hard work, tenacity, and resilience. Coming up in the next episode of A Century of Cougar Football. Everything Lavelle Edwards. You stayed close to him. You became a better man. The coach, the man, the icon. 20 conference titles, 22 bowl games, a Heisman Trophy winner. We'll take an inside look at the legend who inherited a team of second-rate players and turned them into champions. A Century of Cougar Football is researched, hosted, and written by me, Mitch Harper. Rachel Miller-Howard also helped with writing and is responsible for audio production and sound design. Mixing by Trent Sell and Rachel Miller-Howard. Special thanks to Madison Hinkhouse and Nathan Dowdle. And executive producer, Cheryl Worsley. A Century of Cougar Football is a KSL podcast.